well. Happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter. Maybe I should say Merry Christmas after the weather that we had this week. <laughs> Anyone else identify, right? Yeah, you know, I was fully expecting to wake up this morning and under a tree in our house would be some gifts somewhere, you know, but it didn't, didn't turn out that way, you know. Some of you actually still have your Christmas lights up. And you're now validated, right? You know, but no, it's Easter. It's Easter and he is risen. And because Jesus is risen, God's mysterious plan to rescue humanity has been revealed. And uh, we're celebrating that today. And uh, I want to just take a few minutes. My name's Gareth. And I want to just take a few minutes today just to share uh, a little bit from uh, God's word, God's story about the Easter story, which probably leaves you wondering, why... Did that video start with like the Old Testament and like children of Israel, Red Sea, Egyptians chasing them down? What's that got to do with Easter? Well, you're going to find out. And, uh, and this is what I love. Actually, what I love about the Bible, because so often we read the Bible and we think the Bible is kind of this kind of random collection of books and chapters and verses and how's it all connected and... And the reality is that the Bible actually is a story. It's one story. It's God's story to humanity. And what God is communicating in his word is his heartbeat towards us as human beings. He's communicating his plan, his will, the story that he had planned for all of us. And we get to be a part of that because it's a story that continues, it continues to unfold. But the reason why then I love the Bible is that the Bible is actually, because it is one story, all of the parts of the Bible are connected, which means that the, the story that we just saw in that video, and you're probably familiar with that, maybe you've seen kind of the Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur or, you know, one of those kind of, you know, veggie tale version of it, maybe, I don't know. But, but you've seen something that maybe would describe that story in the Old Testament that happened 1,500 years before the first Easter, the Easter when Jesus would go to the cross, when Jesus would be buried and he would uh, do damage to the kingdom of darkness, he would overcome death and he would rise again on the third day, which is what we're celebrating today. But this is what I love about the story of the Bible because the Bible's one connected story and there's one central character in the Bible. He's the hero of the story and his name's Jesus. And today I want to spend a little bit of time kind of connecting those pieces and helping us understand why does Easter matter? What was the whole purpose behind Easter? Surely it's not just Easter eggs and some sort of CNN special about Jesus with questionable material in it, right? Like, like surely there's more to Easter than that, right? And there is. And so today I want to take a little bit of time just to start back in the Old Testament. And, and it's kind of weird. This happened 1,500 years before the first Easter, before Jesus would go to the cross and would rise from the dead. And, and what we're told by scholars is that there were some 2 million Israelites who were in captivity in Egypt. They were slaves. They did no free will. They were whipped and beaten and worked hard uh, at the pleasure of the Egyptians to accomplish whatever the Egyptians wanted them to accomplish. And so we're told that there are two million Israelites in captivity in Egypt. God shows up, and you know the plagues, and you, maybe you've heard some of that kind of story, but, but God shows up to free these children of Israel, the Israelite nation, these two million people. He shows up to free them from captivity. And it's, we're told that they traveled some 70 miles from Egypt to the banks of the Red Sea. 
And when they get to the Red Sea, uh, what they recognize is they're, here they are now trapped. They've got the Red Sea in front of them. And the Red Sea is about 190 miles wide. Now, scholars believe that where the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea was about 12 to 20 miles wide, depending on where it was. But still, you've got 12 to 20 miles of water out in front of you. You've got a mountain range behind you, and you have the full force of the Egyptian army chasing you down with chariots and war, warfare. They're stuck. They're trapped. How would you feel if you were in that kind of predicament, that kind of situation? Google Maps, what did you do? Or maybe better, Moses, we got to find somebody to blame, right? But here are the children of Israel, trapped, stuck, back into some sort of captivity because there's a mountain on one side, there's an ocean on the other, or a sea on the other, and the full force of the Egyptian army is chasing them down. This is what I love about this story, and this is why I love the Bible, because the Bible is constantly revealing to us who God is. And one of the things that we see in this Old Testament story uh, are the seeds for what we really ought to understand about Easter and the Easter story. What we discover about God in this story from the Old Testament is that, that God has prepared a way even when there doesn't seem to be a way. You ever been in a predicament in life? You're like, how am I ever going to get out of this predicament, right? And then all of a sudden, not that the Red Sea opened in front of you, you know, but, but something happened that got you out of that thing. Well, God had prepared a way. In fact, the psalmist, when he was recording and reflecting back on, on this story that happened, he actually described it this way. He said, your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. But God did. And sometimes we don't see things fully. We only see in part. But God sees the beginning from the end. God has a plan. God has a pathway that there doesn't seem to be a pathway. And I love that. I love that this story helps us understand this about God. I also love that this story helps us recognize that God doesn't go halfway. God has a plan to get us to the other side. See, God didn't just have a plan to free the children of Israel out of captivity. God had a plan to get them to the land that he had promised them. That there was a new life, a new way of existing, a new a sense of freedom that they would experience because God had planned it and God was going to get them to the other side. I think there's some really cool things that we could learn about God as we read through the Bible. And that's why the Bible exists, the Bible. And I'd encourage you, pick up the Bible, read it. You'll discover stuff about God that's just the most amazing thing. How many of you have ever been stuck? You ever been in a situation in life where you're like, am I ever gonna get out of this? Is this ever going to change? My wife and I, we, uh, we grew up in, uh, or not grew up, my wife grew up here, I grew up in Ireland, but we spent nine years in upstate New York. And uh, any, any New Yorkers? No, no. I'm the, wow, no New Yorkers, that's good. Um, <laughs> we spent nine years there, it's really good. It's Easter, Easter miracle. But we spent nine years in New York, and, uh, and in upstate New York, um, in the wintertime, they measure snow in feet, not in inches, right? And, and so there were times when it was just dumping snow, the power goes out, the heating goes off, like you're wondering, man, is this thing ever going to get end, or is this how my life ends right now, right here, right? You know, 
And so there's this, this sense of, I'm stuck. Are we ever going to get out? Now, let me translate that for us Oregonians in the room. That's about a half inch of snow here. You know, and we're running to the store to get the eggs and the milk and the bread, right? Like, you know, ah, snowpocalypse, right? And so you felt that sense of being stuck, right? And I realize that it's a little bit of humor, but, but probably all of us in this room either have been, we are, or at some point in our future, we're going to feel stuck. A phone call that comes from the doctor that you didn't want to get. Children that just go sideways, that man, they're just not going down the path that you had hoped and believed and expected for them. Fractured relationships, finances, maybe a struggle, maybe a marriage that's on the rocks, and there's this sense of I'm stuck. And on Easter morning, what I want you to walk out of here and remember is that there is a God in heaven who's not distant, who does not, it's not as if he doesn't care. He's intimately involved with his creation and he cares deeply, and he has a plan. He has a way that might not be obvious to us, but he has a plan to get us to the other side. And the question really is, well, will we trust him, or do we try to do that ourselves? You see, there's, there's something, and this is really the story of Easter, there's something that has every single one of us stuck. In fact, every human being ever to walk this planet has experienced the same thing, and has found themselves stuck as a result of this one thing. And it's really what Easter has come to address. Um, and, and you and I in this room, you know, we might have a, you know, different perspectives on it. And you might not agree with me on this. And, and that's okay. That's, that's the world we live in. And it's great to debate and all of these kinds of things. But there is one thing that keeps every single one of us stuck. In fact, Paul who authored most of the New Testament. He was the guy that wrote many of the letters that we read about in the New Testament. He wrote these letters to believers that were gathered. And Paul pulled back the curtain on his own life, uh, was vulnerable to just look at something that was keeping him stuck. And in so, in so doing, what he was trying to communicate to all of humanity is, this is the same thing that keeps every single one of us stuck. This is what he said in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, I don't really understand myself. Does anybody identify? Spouses, so better not go there. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And Paul is pulling back the curtain on his own heart, his own struggle, this thing that has him stuck, and it's the same thing that has all of us stuck. At some point in, in all of our experiences, there's, there's at some level, we all experience the same thing that keeps every single one of us stuck. Now, I'm not talking about willpower you know, to do a better, you know, to, to stay with the diet, right? Or I'm not talking about, you know, man, I should go to the gym. You know, I want to do it. I know it's good and it's right, but I just can't do it, right? That's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're not talking about you stealing your kid's candy, for goodness sakes. Shame on you, parents, right? That's not what Paul was talking about here. What Paul is talking about is something much deeper, something that's inherent in each single one of us. 
There's a problem. There's something that keeps us stuck. We all experience it. And what Paul is talking about here is this sense of right and wrong. Every single one of us in this room has some sort of sense of right and wrong. We're created that way. We're created to kind of have this sense of right and wrong, good and evil. Now, in a room this size, there's probably some things that we all would agree. That's right and that's wrong. That's good and that's evil, right? It's good that we should be kind and love and be generous uh, and, uh, to one another, right? And so we would probably agree about many things, but there's probably some things that we might disagree. But the point that I'm wanting us to understand this morning is that every single one of us has an inbuilt sense of right and wrong, good and evil. And, and this is what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about why is it that I don't do the things that I ought to do and I don't do the things that I know I, I should not do, right? And what Paul addresses here, he actually continues on because he's trying to search for the answer. What is it that keeps me stuck? What is it that keeps me from moving forward? What is it that holds me captive that just doesn't allow me to do the things that are good and seems to draw me to those things that are wrong. Well, Paul actually answers the question. And he says this in verse 20. He goes on and he says, but if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. Listen to this. It is sin living in me that does it. Ooh, Paul identifying the problem. Paul's saying that thing that holds you captive, just like the Egyptians were holding the children of Israel captive in the Old Testament, that thing that holds every human being captive is this little three-letter word that we don't talk about much called sin. Sin. It's not really kind of, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like we don't talk about it much in culture, do we? You know, it's not like you turn on the evening news and in today's report, we want to talk about sin, right? We just don't do that. We don't talk about sin. In fact, sin, that word, is kind of a little bit of an emotionally charged word, isn't it, in our culture? In fact, I would prefer to just talk about my actions in terms of mistakes. Or maybe, you know, we, we, we as a culture, you know, we kind of trivialize sin. We kind of uh, make it something that maybe it's not. Like we use this phrase, a sinful dessert. Like aren't sinful desserts like the best desserts, right? You, are you getting the theme of dieting, exercise, and I didn't mean for that, but that's the subtext of today, Right? But, but we call things that are not sin, sin, like sinful desserts, right? And yet sin is something that Paul's saying here keeps every single human being stuck, held captive, not allowing us to fully experience the life that God designed us for. And what is sin? You know, I think most of us in the room would probably say, well, sin is some sort of sense of right and wrong, or it's like it's some sort of moral behavior, you know? I mean, to murder somebody would probably be sin, right? Like, like we would have that kind of action-doing kind of orientated description of sin. And that's true to some degree, right? But sin is also this idea of missing the mark. But what we discover from the Bible is that sin at its core is relational, it's about a broken relationship. Or should I say it this way, broken relationships. Sin is like a, a virus that infects the human heart and, and therefore affects every single one of us and affects the world and the culture and the way we function and operate and relate to one another. And we've all become kind of experts on viruses, right? 
You know, we all have opinions and we all have expertise now, right, on viruses. And that's exactly what sin is. Sin is something that has infected all of humanity. And it affects every single one of our relationships. In fact, number one, it affects your relationship with yourself. Because you are created in the image of God. And oftentimes we don't even see that or believe that or understand that. It, it impacts how we relate to ourselves. But sin also impacts your relationship with other people. Think about maybe, uh, you know, I, I was chatting with somebody after first service this morning and they were just talking about how my wife and I had the biggest fight we've ever had, you know, right? And probably at some, some, some place there was sin involved, right? There was like a sense of, no, I'm right, you know, and I'm considering myself more important than another. Like all the, sin impacts how we relate to other people. But sin also impacts how we relate to the world and how the world relates to us. Think about how sin has infected. I mean, once again, turn on the evening news, flip through your feed, and you see the impact and effect of sin throughout our culture, throughout our world. There's all kinds of brokenness and greed and power struggles and injustice and inequities. All of these things, I think, are a result of sin fueling all of this stuff. So sin affects our relationship with ourselves and others in the world, but most of all, sin affects our relationship with God. You see, God created this planet for his glory and for our good. God created everything that, that, that he created so that we could delight in it, enjoy it, and see it as a gift from God, and then in turn relate to him, be dependent upon him, delight in him. That's what the story of Genesis is all about. And it's a little bit like this. If, if someone, you know, if, if you can imagine, you've built this beautiful home, you know, husbands, uh, wives, you know, you guys put all your plans and all your efforts and you, you built this beautiful home, you furnished it, you wanted it to be a place for your family, for your kids, for your friends to come, find peace, find delight, find enjoyment and love what was going on. You built this home so that it could be delighted in and could be enjoyed. And someone comes into that home the night after you build it it's finished, you're about to move in, you have it all furnished, and you're going to move in the next day. And somebody comes into that home and ransacks the home, turns it upside down, destroys everything that's in it. How would you feel? I know how I would feel. I'd be pretty mad. Why? Because that which I had put my effort into was destroyed by somebody else. See, that's what sin did in the garden. That's what we did to God's creation in Adam and Eve. And so sin is something that is relational at its core. Now that sounds like a whole lot of bad news right now. And you're like, I thought we came to Easter. You know, we're supposed to celebrate and have some good times together, right? But in order for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. We've got to understand the bad news. But here's the good news. The good news of Easter is that God is on an endless pursuit to restore the relationship that sin broke. See, God didn't give up on us. God didn't give up on creation. Remember what I said at the start? God had a plan, and what we may not have seen it. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the angels didn't even know how God was going to rescue humanity, how he was going to free us from captivity, how he was going to reintroduce us and bring us back into this new life that we would have in Jesus. The angels didn't even know, but God had a plan. And God had a plan that was going to get us to the other side. Someone had to come, and that's the story of Easter. God's son, Jesus, left the majesty and splendor of heaven, and though we were deserving of penalty and punishment for our sin, for our rebellion, for ransacking God's house, so to speak, right? Though we were the ones responsible for that rebellion and, that, and, and should have paid the penalty for that, right? 
God sends his son, Jesus, who leaves the majesty of heaven, who comes to this earth, that lives the life you and I could never live, will never live. And he willingly, obediently, humbly, sacrificially goes to the cross on our behalf so that we can be forgiven of our sin. And this is the first part of the story of Easter. This is what we celebrate on Good Friday, that, that someone came to rescue us, a mediator, someone who would go between us and God, someone who would take our penalty and our punishment for our rebellion and our sin, that thing that keeps us stuck, and that he would take all of that so that we could be free. What a story. I think that's pretty good news. We need someone to mediate between us and God. And his name is Jesus, and this is the story of Easter. Now, I have a picture of the engine of my car. Now, isn't that exciting? Went to church today, and I saw the pastor showed us a picture of the engine of his car, right? And so you can see, I have a little Mini Cooper, and, uh, and, and the reality is that I love my little Mini Cooper. I love it when I push the little button and everything works. But have you ever got in your car in the morning, and you push the little button, or you turn the key, and it doesn't work? And some of you are like, no problem, I got this figured. Me, I panic. In fact, I am so like not mechanical that I've got people in between services trying to help me. Like, so I was like in between services this morning. I've got people going, hey, that picture of your mini, you know, that piece right there is that, and that piece right there. I, here's what I can tell you about it. I know those two things. Those are headlights on the outside. The little thing on the bottom right, there's a blue cap. That's where I put water to make sure of my windshield. And the red one is, I think, the positive terminal on my battery. That's the extent of my mechanical knowledge. Can I get some applause? I'm feeling good about myself this morning, right? <laughs> but here's the problem. When there's a problem with that engine, I am clueless to know how to fix it. I need someone to mediate between me and my engine. It's called a mechanic. And I pay him a lot of money to do that, right? But here's the thing. Jesus, he's the mediator between us and God because there's something broken in us that we cannot fix ourselves and we need someone who can come and fix it. This is the story of Easter that Jesus has come to repair that which is broken in us, that which holds us captive, that's which keeps us stuck, that's which kind of causes us not to live the life that God has actually designed us for. But that's only the first part of Easter. Because you see, it's one thing for us to come out of Egypt, it's another thing for us to walk into new life. See, the children of Israel, they had been freed from captivity, but they hadn't yet entered into the new life that Jesus had in store for them. And the reality is that God has a new life for us. It's not just that Jesus frees us from guilt and shame and, and, and from sin and being trapped by all of that stuff. God actually has a purpose. God wants to restore us to something even more beautiful, even more meaningful, even more significant, even more purposeful. There's this ancient Japanese art called Kintsugi, and Kintsugi, Kintsugi, I think that's how you say it. My, I'm Irish, I barely speak English, so don't, I can't speak Japanese. But Kintsugi is this idea of, and this art form where there was a piece of pottery that was placed on the potter's wheel. It was formed with a purpose. It had meaning, it had purpose, it had significance, it had something that it was designed to accomplish, and it gets broken. Now, you and I, we might toss that aside, 
But in Japan, they, they, they take these broken pieces of pottery and they don't use super glue and they don't use duct tape, which is about what I would do, but they use the most precious of material. They use gold to actually uh, weld the seams back together. And what ends up happening is that they produce something even more beautiful, something that where purpose and meaning and significance is rediscovered. That's the second part of the story of Easter, is that we're not just freed from our sin because of what Jesus has done on the cross and his death. We are not just freed, but we are invited into a new way of life, a new sense of purpose, a new sense of meaning and significance, because God creates something beautiful out of the broken pieces of our lives. I want to quickly show you a little movie or a little video uh, of a couple in our church that, that this is their story. And there's hundreds of people in our church that this is their story. It's different stories, but it's the same story where God takes the broken pieces of our lives and puts it back together and produces something even more beautiful. Let's watch this together. So I am Jennifer, and uh, I am married to my husband, Michael. So um, my parents divorced when I was a baby. And my mother struggled emotionally. And so I was put into many different caregiver situations that were unsafe. I learned at a very early age that uh, I was not safe with my mother and with other people. My mom remarried when I was in second grade and she married a man who was physically and verbally abusive. And that was my experience in my childhood. Growing up, my dad was in the Air Force. Uh, he was a godly man. And we went to church all throughout my growing up. I never remember a time when uh, we weren't attending church. And uh, it was great. All up until uh, about the age of 12 uh, was when divorce entered my life, when my mom left my dad. I went to sports and started drinking. And uh, there in California at that time, uh, drugs, marijuana in particular, was running rampant. And uh, at the age of 12, 13, I started doing drugs with my friends. When I left at 18, I went to college and I found myself in a very similar situation uh, as I was in in my childhood. Uh, my first wife left me after 14 years, and uh, I was devastated. The same wound from the divorce of my mom and dad. So I found myself in uh, circumstances that were completely out of my control, and I was hopeless. And I remember praying in my bathroom on my knees, begging God to meet me and to help me. And uh, a week later, my children and I were uh, in a situation that was safe. God just surrounded me with people that started speaking hope and life and truth. Ever since, the Lord has just been blessing me more and more each day. One thing that I would say, uh, we're hurt by people, but we can only heal in community. When we're honest and transparent with ourselves and with other people, and I find in that process, uh, Christ shows up and it's the ministry of His presence that changes everything. But as we're honest with each other, we will find that everyone has a story. And when it comes into the light, it loses 
its control. And what happens is the light of Christ shines on it and it becomes beautiful. And that has been my experience. <laughs> I love what Jennifer says in that video that every one of us has a story, don't we? And, uh, and the reality is that when our story intersects with God's story, something dynamic happens. And, and what we discover through this story of Easter and, and why Easter matters so much is that because every single human being is stuck because of sin, we, we, we are not fully experiencing life the way God designed it to be, even in this broken world that we live in. But this is the story of Easter, that, that God sees you, that God knows you, that God knows your story. God knows those things that keep, hold us captive, that keep us stuck, that we try to move forward and we spring back. God knows all of that stuff. And the story of Easter and the good news of the gospel that we read about in the Bible is that God has never stopped pursuing you. Not with some two by four that, you know, to whack you upside the head for all the bad things that you've done. And the Bible actually tells us this. God is long-suffering. God is patient. God is kind. In fact, it actually says that his kindness draws us to repentance. That's who God actually is. And, and the problem with the story that the world tells us is that, no, that's not who God is. No, 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 this is who God is. So much so that the greatest evidence of God's heart towards you is that he would send his son in your place to take the penalty and the payment and the punishment for your and my sin. I don't think there's any greater love. The Bible actually says it this way, this way. No greater love has a man than this, to lay down his life for another. But the good news of Easter and the second part of the story is not just that Jesus came to lay down his life. Jesus rose from the dead. It's evidence that God accepted that sacrifice, that sin and death and hell could not hold Jesus Christ. And because he rose from the dead, because he rose from the dead, we're not just forgiven for our sin and our shame and all of that junk that tries to hold us back. We have the opportunity to enter into a new way of being human. Actually, the way God designed us. Life and freedom all because of Jesus. It says this in 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. New life to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And there's an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfailing. It's kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. What Paul, Peter is saying here is that you and I have a living hope. Not some blind optimism, not some kind of wishful thinking. No, because a person, a real person, died in our place on the cross, an actual historical event, and then rose again, we have the opportunity for new life. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to, we don't do this often, but in life, life gets busy. But I want us just to stand together. I want us just to close our eyes for a second. And just take a moment to consider Easter. To consider that which God has done for us through his son, Jesus. So just close your eyes. 
Just a moment of privacy, a moment to reflect, a moment just to recognize that, man, maybe I'm stuck. Maybe the thing that's actually keeping me stuck is sin. And and there's been a sacrifice for that sin and there's an invitation into a new way of life. What if there was a door right in front of you that all you had to do was reach out, open that door and step through? For the children of Israel, it was a Red Sea and God had prepared a plan. He'd have way to deal with that which was keeping them stuck. And God has a way a way through Jesus to deal with that which keeps every single one of us stuck. And so this morning in this atmosphere, Lord Jesus, we just stop to acknowledge your forgiveness, your kindness, your goodness toward us. That Lord Jesus, you came and what we celebrate this morning, Lord Jesus, is through your death, burial, and resurrection, you free us from captivity to those things that keep us stuck the sin that holds us and you give us a new way of life. And so Lord Jesus, this morning we acknowledge that. Man, with every just eye closed and as you reflect upon that this morning, Jesus is actually giving you that invitation. And this morning, maybe you're sensing, man, I want that. I want to be forgiven. I want to be free. I want that new life that I could find in Jesus the, the reason what Easter happened. I want that this morning. If that's you this morning, would you have the courage, the boldness, the step of faith, just like the children of Israel had to step into the river. Would you step in this morning and say, man, I want that. If that's you this morning, would you simply slip up your hand and just you acknowledging to Jesus, Jesus, I want to be forgiven. I want that new life. Come on, hands all over. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your forgiveness. Your word tells us that if we confess our sins, Lord Jesus, we just acknowledge the fact that we're stuck because of this thing called sin. Lord Jesus, your word says that you forgive us. Not only do you forgive us, you make us a new creation. Not only do you make us a new creation, your word tells us that you adopt us as sons and daughters, Lord Jesus, into a new way of life. You are the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus, today we thank you for new life that we receive because of what you've done for us through Easter. In Jesus' name. Listen, if you gave your life to Jesus today, if you're taking kind of a step in that direction, we want to help you. And simply, we, we have a, a, a little thing you can text to ALCPNW to 94000. We've got some resources. We'd love to get those resources to you just to help you take your step with Jesus. But I think it would be awesome for us this morning to end with this song singing about how God is, Jesus is our living hope. Can we do that together? God bless you guys. Shadows of my soul.
Came the morning, let's see the ground. 